All right, welcome to the conversation. Uh, now we're gonna have on a, a really great reporter. And you know, I uh, critique the mainstream media all the time. And every once in a while when I do that, I tell you, but they have great reporters and they do write great stories from time to time. This is one of them. Uh, so Craig Whitlock has won uh, almost every award, a finalist three times for the Pulitzer Prize. And he wrote the, the book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. Uh, it's particularly relevant now. So Craig, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. No problem. So, um, you know, I was greatly frustrated by the coverage um, throughout the withdrawal on cable news. And the reason was because they seem to have collective amnesia, partly about your story um, that, uh, that the Pentagon had been basically lying to us the whole time. And they made it seem like, oh, it's Joe Biden's fault. He's the one that created this mess. Mm. Okay, so hence I ask you. Uh, the Pentagon had been telling us that they were doing nation building the whole time and it was going swimmingly. Um, did they not believe that themselves? Well, that's exactly right. And the documents I obtained for the Afghanistan papers coverage in the Washington Post and in the book that's just come out, there's interview after interview with US Army officials, with administration officials from Bush's term to Obama and up to Trump where particularly with the building of the Afghan army and Afghan paramilitary police, that people didn't have any faith in the Afghan security forces from the get go, that despite more than $85 billion that the United States spent to build up the Afghan army and police, there was real fear all along that this, this enormous army and police force wouldn't be able to stand up to the Taliban, even though the Taliban were a bunch of guerrillas, much poorly equipped compared to the Afghans. Just all those years, people were worried that that the Afghan army would fall apart like a house of cards. Um, and this is what we saw happen in the last weeks of August before the Taliban took over. So, um, but as I was reading uh, your material, uh, Craig, I, I thought, you know, did they even know what they were trying to do? Because a lot of the officials, even the, even the defense secretaries, Rumsfeld, Gates, etc., it didn't seem like they had a good sense of what they were trying to accomplish. So, okay, they, the Taliban gave shelter to Al Qaeda. We drive Al Qaeda out of Afghanistan fairly quickly. Uh, Taliban offers to surrender. We don't take the surrender, which is insane. Uh, and then, uh, and then, ten years later, we finally get Bin Laden. And at that point. What are we doing? Did they know what we were doing? What were they trying to accomplish? Well, this is the, the fundamental question. What were we trying to accomplish for most of the last 20 years, but particularly the last 10 since bin Laden was killed? As you correctly pointed out, the, the original mission, the whole purpose in the beginning back in 2001 was pretty well understood by the American people and was articulated by the Bush administration that the whole point was to go after Al Qaeda, was to defend the United States. From another terrorist attack and make sure that Al Qaeda couldn't strike again. And that was largely accomplished within the first six months. Al Qaeda's leaders were either captured, killed, or had fled Afghanistan. So then the question becomes what now? And understandably, Afghanistan was in terrible shape. This was a devastated country. It was racked by hunger, refugees, it needed to be rebuilt. So there was some responsibility here to try and stabilize. The country and try and help rebuild it. But the problem was neither Bush nor Obama or Trump, quite frankly, could really articulate to the American people what exactly they were trying to do and at what point it would be okay to leave. 
So the war kind of dragged on and people let it drift. And part of the reason it dragged on was there was this fear that this Afghan state we had built up from scratch wouldn't be able to defend itself. And so we just kept staying longer and hoping things would change, but they never really did until Biden came in and said enough. So Craig, I have a different theory. So your material lays out deep incompetence and honestly all the way up the chain from contractors to the military to the presidents. I mean, when I see the decisions Barack Obama made, I think, didn't you ask the generals, what are you trying to accomplish? And well, at what, at what point do we accomplish it? Give me metrics, how do we measure it? How, how do we know that we've won? When do I leave, right? And he just, he didn't either have the competence or the courage to ask those questions. And so I'm not laying it on Obama, Trump and, and, and Cheney and Bush and Rumsfeld were all at fault. They all did it together, they all made the same mistakes. And of course, our Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld were the worst because they, they were offered bin Laden on a platter. They were offered the Taliban on a platter, they just wouldn't take it. So which then actually leads to my, my other question, Craig, which is my other theory is just corruption. That the generals almost all retire and work for defense contractors. So I don't know that they actively consciously said, "Oh, the longer we stay, the richer I get afterwards. But they do know they're gonna get the money from the defense contractors. And we didn't all lose, the defense contractors made a tremendous amount of money. They way outperformed the stock market and nobody ever talks about it. So do you think that's a factor? Well, I, that's something that's understandable. A lot of people have frustration with, right? That we we see that the United States spent over two trillion dollars in Afghanistan over the last twenty years, and what is there to show for it right now? Not not a whole lot. The Afghan army and and police and the Afghan government have gone up in a puff of smoke. We see all these weapon systems that were left that the Taliban have taken. You know, I think there was a real attempt to try and help build up Afghanistan with roads, clinics. Uh, schools, things like that. But you know, this, like you said, there was a lot of incompetence involved. But in regards to people profiting, uh, there were a lot of people profiting through the war. Defense contractors, not just American ones, but international ones, Afghan contractors, and in particular, our allies in the Afghan government. And this was a real flaw in our whole strategy was uh, we were feeding the corruption in Afghanistan because we were spending more money than that country could absorb. So particularly during Obama's term in office, he's trying to rush through this strategy of his to build up the Afghan state. So we threw more money there than than the Afghans knew what to do with. So a lot of it ended up in the pockets of contractors, but also Afghan officials, the warlords who we had brought into the government. So there wasn't much incentive for our Afghan allies to change. There wasn't much incentive for them to try and negotiate with the Taliban because they would only lose power if they came to some sort of reconciliation and they might lose a lot of the money that was lying in their pockets that was coming from Washington. So there were people across the board who were profiting from the status quo. And that is, I think, a fair reason why things persisted as long as they did. Yeah, look, when your best case scenario is our, is our military is deeply incompetent and couldn't get anything done in 20 years. And our leaders are so buffoonish that they couldn't even ask simple questions like, what are we trying to accomplish? And that's our best case scenario, because the worst case scenario is they're halfway doing it on purpose because of corruption. It's not a good place to be, which then Craig leads me to the next question, which is about the press. 
I'm really curious your take on what you saw over the last couple of weeks. So were there problems with the withdrawal? Of course there were, right? But it seemed to me like they were all trying to make it seem like, oh, if we just stayed longer, it would have worked out, which is absolute insanity. We don't need to discuss that. But as you watch it, are you frustrated at the collective amnesia as they constantly point to Biden and ignore your reporting on all the mistakes that the military made? Yeah, well, look, I want to be careful here. I don't want to defend Biden. I think the evacuation wasn't well planned. I think his administration thought this would be a more orderly process. They thought the Afghan government would stand on its own two feet for at least a few more months. So I, you know, I don't want to let him off the hook at the end, but you're right, the collective amnesia is pretty striking. And I think you correctly point out that the number of people who said, oh, he should have just kept troops there, everything would have been fine. It would have been like in South Korea or Germany where we could stay indefinitely and troops wouldn't get killed and we'd stabilize things. You know, that's just, you know, a false reading of what was going on. The only reason the Taliban hadn't been attacking the US military over the last year and a half is because Trump had cut this deal with them where he said, I'm going to pull out US forces. The two things you have to do is not attack our troops and, you know, renounce Al Qaeda. So the Taliban, of course, wants the US to leave. So they're like, sure, we won't, if you promise to leave, we're not going to attack US troops anymore. But if Biden had flipped that decision, if he said, okay, we're gonna stay, we're gonna send more troops back, there's no question that the violence would have gotten worse, that we would have been dragged deeper into a conflict. Because over the last several years, the Taliban has gradually been getting stronger and stronger. They have more fighters you know, under their command than they did back in 2001 when we first won the war. So if we had stayed, we had to be prepared that Afghanistan was the violence levels were just going to pick up even more. So we have time for one quick question, but everybody read the Afghanistan papers because it's real reporting, gives your actual facts. So Craig, you know, we have this absurdity of they say, oh, it's like South Korea, as if we're welcomed by the Afghan people. If we were so welcome, why did the Afghan government lose in 11 days? So, which leads me to the final question. Who is, can you have, do you have any sense of what the Afghan people actually wanted? Well, that's a good question. Of course, there's not a simple answer, but because in Kabul is very different from the rest of the country, and we just haven't had very good news coverage outside of Kabul for one reason, because it's not safe. You know, the Taliban had control of the rural parts of the country. But you know, I think that one thing is clear in news coverage and one theme that is consistent is the Afghan people are tired of war. They've been tired, they've been the 20 years we've been there, they had civil war before that, they had 10 years of the Russians being there. They're tired of war, they want stability. They may not like the Taliban very much, but they really didn't like the Afghan government. They saw it as corrupt and in many instances worse than the Taliban. That's a lot of the views in the in the rural areas, I think. So I think the Afghan people, again, they want stability more than anything. They want the fighting to stop. They may not love the Taliban, but they really want peace. And I think everybody can understand that. And so in some ways, they saw the Americans as trying to protect certain rights for them. But they knew that as long as the Americans were there, the fighting was gonna continue. So I think there is relief in some corners in Afghanistan that you know, foreign troops have finally left, even if those same people don't like the Taliban at all. All right, Craig Whitlock, the author of Afghanistan Papers, The Secret History of War, of the War. Thank you so much for joining us, Craig, really appreciate it.
course, thank you. Really appreciate it, Cheng. All right, back on the conversation. Now joining us, our own uh, managing editor, Jonathan Larson. He broke a story today about how Mike Lindell got radicalized by a group called The Family. They run the National Prayer Breakfast. It's got so many different components at it uh, of the story, including Mike Lindell himself yelling at Jonathan. So that's a fun part of the story. Um, Jonathan, uh, welcome back. Thank you. All right, so um, f- let's start with Lindell. Um, I was, I honestly did not know until I read your story that he was not always evangelical. So tell us how he got to be the way that he is. So it's as you as you alluded to, it's a complicated, kind of amazing story. He in 2014 met Stephen Baldwin, the Christian actor. What what we found out was that a year before Lindell met Stephen Baldwin. Uh, Stephen Baldwin had set up a nonprofit called Friends of Stephen Baldwin Ministry, and the three principles of that nonprofit were all tied to some extent to the family. That's the that's the secretive religious group in in based in Washington that has people around the world that also runs the National Prayer Breakfast. So some of those people who were in Stephen Baldwin's orbit. Based on tax filings, we ended up finding, and business records, things like that. Some of those same family folks ended up connected to Lindell. And in 2016, Lindell told me, at the last minute, he was invited to that year's prayer breakfast. And at that year's prayer breakfast, he had a number of experiences, which in his own words, began to set him on a path towards where he is now. He describes himself roughly prior to 2015 or so as apolitical. He literally says in his book, I didn't know the difference between a Republican and a Democrat. And he's like, yeah, I guess I'm Christian. Sure, why not? And he had a number of experiences that were facilitated by members of the family, including one year after the prayer breakfast, someone he appears to have met at the prayer breakfast who ended up on his board. This was on his nonprofit board. This was a guy who was on the board of the family. The family's legal entity is called the Fellowship Foundation. This guy was a PR guy who's on that board, now both boards, Lindell and the families, and he's literally the spokesperson for the family. He suggests that Lindell go to this sort of like a retreat, it's like a program for military veterans who have are suffering PTSD. And they use Christ, they use Jesus, accepting Jesus as your savior. That's part of how they bring peace and comfort to these, these you know, it's, it's called Restored Warrior, Operation Restored Warrior. And they talk about the pain that they've experienced. And in, in Lindell's book, uh, in, in his own words, I should say, I don't recall if it's in the book. He says, I, I did a complete surrender, I fell to my knees. The guy running the program was uh, had ties to the family. And it was the family board member who sent him, suggested that he attend this program. And so they, they essentially, engineered, might be slightly too strong a word, but maybe not, engineered this guy's political radicalization. They talked at the prayer breakfast. Lindell describes in his book how the prayer breakfast leadership wanted him 
actually, this is a, sub, a separate source who told me this. Uh, ben Carson's former campaign manager at the time told me that the NPB, the prayer breakfast leadership, specifically requested that Carson and Lindell be brought together. And during that prayer session meeting, Lindell writes in his book, he he began to understand his eyes were opened and he everyone in the room agreed that the upcoming 2016 election would either take America down a path of, of renewal or further down the dark path that it had already been on after kicking God out of the public square. So all of these things were, were uh, inculcated in Lindell at the prayer breakfast meeting, which the the uh, Carson campaign manager told me the the prayer breakfast leadership wanted to happen, and and as Lindell says in his book, everyone in that prayer breakfast group. This is a little side group off to the side of the main event. Um, after the main event, uh, they all agreed that it was either a spiritual renewal or dark path, which means everyone in that room was. Maybe not a Trump fan yet because he was not yet the nominee, but they certainly were were uh, you know on the Republican side, the evangelical right wing Christian Republican side. So, Jonathan, it's a funny question to ask from a guy who was screamed at by Mike Lindell a couple of days ago. But as I read the story and we talked about it on the Young Turks, I thought this guy guy's kind of a childlike innocence. It seems like that the the family, which by the way is that national prayer breakfast attended by Republicans and Democrats, Obama, the Clintons, and so tons of Democrats still go to and validate this group that spawned Mike Lindell in a sense. It looked like they hoodwinked Lindell, and they did it for the big pillow money. So so <laughs> the big pillow money, right? So it's 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 very hard to divine motive, no pun intended. But we did find that. Um, well, I had a source close to the family who who told me that the people who had been in Stephen Baldwin's orbit and then ended up close to Lindell, at least one of them did, um, that they were sort of known for using the breakfast to to you know try to reel in. Folks who might become their patrons, who they didn't necessarily have that that Jesus relationship with, yet, and and had it a little backwards. The breakfast is supposed to celebrate that relationship, at least in the family's thinking. That's not necessarily how the public sees this event. Um, and and these guys had a reputation, or at least were thought of as possibly using, like, hey, want to come to the national prayer breakfast? President's going to be there. That would be the way they would create these relationships. And what we did find through tax filings and other things was um, uh, one of the guys who Lindell said he had never even heard of actually was on the board, president of the Lindell Foundation the following year, 2017. Uh, and they disclosed paying him $55,000 and change that year. So there's something to that. The family board member, who I mentioned earlier, is a public relations guy. His company has represented both Baldwin, Lindell, Lindell Foundation, and My Pillow. I'm assuming not for free. And there was there was a another person in there as well, who's who's um, they had a, a program 
about using biblical ideas to for to to foster resilience, and uh, that program sort of ended up on the on the downward end of some trickle down money that came from the Lindell Foundation. Although I should I should be clear, the the guy who I spoke to about it said that it actually went through his charity to Liberty University, but. Um, yeah. On the filings, it says, you know, there there are various things that suggest that money went to his program. Yeah. That said, I do want to disabuse you though, Jenk. I, I, one of the things we've been researching, lots of people connected to the breakfast based on these documents that we have. And so I'll go and look at their blog posts and their their websites for their their you know their very modest um, mission work and their nonprofits, and they all seem about as genuine as you. You could want, um, assuming you're a religious person, and you know it's not the cartoons of you know televangelists putting hands on people and stuff like that. So whether it's hoodwinked or that's just the nature of how these relationships work, I'm not I'm not maybe fit to judge. But you could certainly make the case that like Lindell wasn't exactly driving his own boat here. Yeah, and so I get it. Look, they're evangelicals, they're gonna go for evangelical causes. And of course, the underlying problem is that one of those causes is, as an example, anti-LGBTQ rights and Democrats shouldn't support that. So, and they shouldn't support an organization that's so in bed with Mike Lindell. But Jonathan's got these documents about the family, keep reading it. You know, Go to tyt.com, go to investigates, you'll see all these amazing stories. And shows you how the right wing works behind the scenes and how sometimes Democrats accidentally help it. But before we run out of time, which we're very close to, um, you called Mike Lindell as a normal reporter would to get confirmation on some of these uh, facts. And I, I actually sent a bunch of emails to my pillow, which is like the only contact information for these various entities he has. And then he ended up emailing me and asking for my number. That's so he ended up calling me. Okay, got you. He calls you and you're asking for confirmation of things, uh, like yeah. again, like anybody would. Uh, where does it break down and when does he start screaming at you and why? Um, so one of the emails that we sent to my pillow, which was actually not really about him. So I, I was taken aback because I didn't understand what he was talking about because we had sent lengthy questions about him. One of the questions about someone else at his company, uh, he accused me of lying about and he was right that we got it wrong in the email, I got it wrong in the email. But of course, that's why you send these emails is, is to check and, and make sure that, that the parties involved have a chance to say, no, actually that's wrong. I think he um, I think he took it as proof that I was going to lie and make stuff up. And then and then it was interesting because then you know I asked him, so he was calling me, I'm not even sure if I can say the words on, on the air, but anyway. Yeah, um, yeah no, we said it, lying scumbag. Uh, Yes, scumbag was was repeated. Pawn scum, I think, was in there. Liar, where do you get these lies? Stuff like that. So he, at one point, I said something like, "Can you explain to me how you got invited to the 2016 National Prayer Breakfast?" And again, he was like, "See, where do you come up with this stuff? I wasn't at the 2016 Prayer Breakfast." To which I responded, "You write in your book." that you had conversations there about the upcoming 2016 election. And he's like, oh yeah, all right. <laughs> and then and then I say, I asked him about this guy who ended up running his foundation, president of his foundation. And I said, you, you pay, 
you paid him $55,000. And he said, where do you get these lies? And I responded, it's your own nonprofit's tax filings. So it seems to me possible that and he even told me at some point, like, we haven't done anything with, with the foundation for four years. Well, after that four year period, more recently than that four year period, there have still been people from the family involved with the nonprofit and money has been going to evangelical causes. So it's hard for me not to wonder if he hadn't hung up, whether we would have found out that maybe he wasn't aware of some of the things his own foundation was doing. He seems to have think uh, he seems to have thought it was defunct. They've continued filing tax filings, disclosing revenues, uh, uh, paying expenses, making distributions, all of that stuff. So someone's doing something with it. Yeah, I mean, if he has a rational bone left in his body, he might want to look at well, how they're spending his money at his foundation. And he may he might found out some interesting things hidden under that pillow. All right, and tyt.com, go to investigates. Jonathan, you wanna give a quick shout out to some folks who helped you on the story? Yeah, our news assistant, Zoltan Lucas, and our, our intern, Jamia Zarzuela, both just Absolutely stepped up. We, as you know, we were we were kind of racing to get these stories out so that uh, people would have them in time for Labor Day, and and you guys would have them in time for the show. So they totally stepped up, and and I just wanted to acknowledge that. That's awesome. All right, Jonathan Larson, managing editor for TYT Investigates. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, we'll see you next time.